The National Geospatial Intelligence Agency is about, well, geography, of course, and data, and now it's about artificial intelligence. For a progress report, earlier I spoke with the NGA's Director of Data and Digital Innovation, Mark Munsell, starting with where you begin to apply AI. Here's an excerpt. For us, the big picture, right, with our agency is all about imagery, mostly right? And geospatial information. And so we obviously work with thousands and thousands of images a day, and that's ever increasing. We have new sensors constantly coming on board. Of course, the problem that we have is we don't have more humans to look at and exploit all of those images. So it's a linear problem for us right now that's going to turn exponential. So for us, we have to employ automation to be able to tackle this problem. Artificial intelligence in particular, and it's actually a subdomain, machine learning in the domain of computer vision. You might have heard that term before. This is where we have computers actually, I'll say, emulate, simulate the cognitive recognition of things on an image that a human would. And so by having the computer do this more and more and having the computer do it more and more accurately, we collect more data faster. So this is really an area in which it does increase efficiency of operations and the ability to create the products that you need. But it's really also, I think, a crossover in that it will actually enhance mission delivery of the NGA to your federal and DOD customers. You know, let's be clear. This is all about increasing mission effectiveness, not decreasing the amount of humans that it takes to do this mission. I joke a little bit about it when we're asked by oversight, when we're asked by budgeteers that are essentially looking for efficiencies. This is the great thing about automation. It takes so many people to do it. Yes, very true. And so what's the approach? I mean, I did an interview some time ago, maybe a year or so ago. One of the challenges that NGA had in computer vision is, is that really a actual circle there down on the ground? And if it is a true circle, that is all the points are equidistant from the center point, then it must be man-made. And therefore, what is it? Yeah, so you can imagine, you know, as a national security intelligence community agency, we are very interested in certain objects of interest that we want to track that are maybe indicators or warnings of things the country needs to be aware of. And so what we do is we have humans start the process by labeling images. So we will have a particular object of interest that we want to track, and a human will identify examples of that object. And in sort of modern computer vision technology, it might take thousands, tens of thousands of examples of those objects to train a model. After you've trained a model uh, with a a good algorithm, we then test that model, just like you would any sort of software or any new technology. Test that model against a known set. We kind of judge its quality based on that test, then employ it, put it into operations. And for us, that means we run the models, we run inference on imagery. So we take a certain set of models that are looking for certain kinds of objects over certain targets, run that, and it produces detections. We're talking about, in this case, millions of detections. And we take those detections and then sort of sift, again, another human operation here, where we sort of sift through those detections and find result sets or maybe we write code to find things. And then from those detections, we develop insights and, and write reports. We're speaking with Mark Monsell. He's Director of Data and Digital Innovation at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. And a lot of agencies dealing with AI talk about the ethics, making sure that outcomes are fair, equitable, and that gets into the type of training data you use. But you're not training with face recognition, so there's different 
races, different ethnicities and so forth, male, female, whatever. You're looking at things on the ground, you know, seen from space in general. And so what are the types of biases, the types of distortions that can come into AI in this particular domain that you have to worry about? Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's a great point, Tom, in terms of, you know, this really isn't personal, <laughs> what we're trying to do. You're right. It's from space. It's from low Earth orbit or from a UAS or a UAV. And so for us, it's a little more along the lines of our goal is to increase accuracy of detecting these objects as much as possible. So there's kind of three vectors that we're looking for here. We're looking to improve the positive identification of these objects. We're looking to improve the geolocation of these objects. That's very important. And we're looking to do it faster. So all three of those things, sort of an enduring need, an enduring capability development cycle that we're on to make that better. And so when it comes to things like ethics and when it comes to things like responsible AI, for us, we're trying to make all of that better. And some people have asked, maybe we should pause, or maybe this AI is too powerful, or maybe we aren't um, responsible enough in this effort. I would say we're not there yet. I think the federal government and my agency in particular is trying to make it better, trying to increase the quality, and therefore we would never really consider at this point pausing what we're developing because we're just at the sort of beginning of making this good. And there is a big human capital side to this, a big knowledge base side to this, and artificial intelligence is ultimately about people using it. And so you've launched a certification program, the director has announced, within NGA. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so this is our effort to ensure that developers of the technology and users of the technology are using the technology responsibly. And for us, it's again, it's not about necessarily like a bias or maybe a personalization problem. For us, it's more about are you using it within the guidelines of the Department of Defense, within the guidelines of that have already been established, the law of armed conflict, do no civilian harm. You know, are we using it in the American values that have been established already by the Department of Defense and the intelligence community to conduct our operations lawfully and ethically? Yes. Yeah, so what are some of the challenges there that might come up in this highly technical use of it? For example, if it identifies, you know, a farm that you wouldn't want to bomb. I mean, yeah. not that the NGA would make that decision, but you've got to feed up the information. This is a farm. This is a factory that might be turning out howitzer shells or something. Yeah. So when we certify developers of the technology, we want to ensure that they're developing it correctly. And we want to ensure that the quality of the AI technology models are validated. And so you would fail certification if you produce poor models that are misidentifying and mischaracterizing our objects of interest. Are there any intellectual property questions or challenges with applying artificial intelligence to imagery data that might have been acquired commercially by NGA? That's a good question for either a contracts lawyer or a intellectual property lawyer. But, but I'll say broadly, the things that we protect are our labels. And we, we consider all the labels that we've created a national asset and that we would sort of not uh, transfer those outside of the government or to other places. But when it comes to using commercial imagery or other forms of imagery, most of our license agreements allow us to run this kind of analytic on that information. Back to the AI assurance and responsible AI question, you know, we have an established framework that the White House, the Department of Defense, and the IC have already established and the guidelines that we follow. And so everything we do 
conforms to those guidelines. All right. And by the way, how did you personally come to this? Tell us a little bit about yourself. I've been a technologist almost all my career. Uh, I started with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. So, of course, you know, the challenge was to find an agency to work for that had even a more difficult name to pronounce. Right. (laughs) And so I've been doing this for over 30 years and was the chief technology officer for NGA before this job. Have several assignments uh, of leadership inside the agency, both on technology side as well as the um, analytics side. And have started uh, companies, technology companies, and sold them, uh, spent some time outside of working for some of the cloud vendors, and had the opportunity to come back and help NGA in the artificial intelligence area. And I was very happy to come back and, and do that. Yeah, the cloud vendors eat their young. You don't want to work there too long. But I did have one final question, and this is highly technical. But, you know, in the 50s and 60s, to do aerial imagery, there were super high-resolution photographic cameras with really fine-grained film that were, you know, amazing. I think they're in museums, these cameras. And so you would fly over, and then maybe a month later, you'd fly over, oh, there's an extra building there that wasn't there before, or there's a missile silo in Cuba, whatever the case might be. So you could compare two pictures. Now you're getting continuous drones by the petabyte of video and so forth. Is there too much data coming in? And maybe if we went back to a model of, well, a snapshot every two months is good enough, and it's a heck of a lot easier. Yeah, Tom, I think we're together as far as being Luddites, wanting to go back and uh, and, uh, not. (laughs) I still have my Hasselblad. You know, is there too much data? You know, guys our age were saying, yeah, man, can you can you slow down? We, we don't need all this data. Um, reality is it's not stopping. Mark Monsell is Director of Data and Digital Innovation at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. There's much more to the interview. Find it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. There's also a link there to that AI strategy. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, 
people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. Uh, and that's what I do. And, that, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arena. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff. Okay. Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right. And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on. Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause and, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again, because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but 
But I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith 
and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett, and really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.